Well, I want to start, I'm going to start and end with you all. Um, and, bef and I want to tell a little preamble, just a little wisdom tale. This tale is attributed to the Cherokee tradition. Some people think it may have come from the Inuit and has many things we don't actually know. But there's a story where a grandfather, uh, and that's particularly appropriate to me, was just hanging with his granddaughter and began to tell her a tale about two wolves that were inside of him. Uh, two wolves that were there fighting, so to speak. Um, and so he said, you know, one of these wolves is full of anger and jealousy and envy and hate for, hatred and all of the traits that you might say are less than endearing qualities. And the other wolf is full of love and kindness and compassion and empathy, joy and celebration, and all of the things we think about when they're the virtues that we want to have or have our beloveds have. So the granddaughter took it in, and the grandfather said, these wolves are in all of us. So the granddaughter took it in and said, grandfather, which one will win? And the grandfather said, the one that you feed. I thought of that tale, I use it a fair amount, but I thought of it because I think of you all, and I'll start with you all because I found you, I think right before the pandemic, I found Fran on Instagram because her litanies and prayers uh, moved me immediately. And then again, to follow her on Instagram and then checked out the church where she worked and then found um, Aurelia and Matthew and then you all. and. Um, this pandemic has been hard, but uh, the gift of finding you all has been a joy and a celebration. And so when um, your incredible team of three pastors asked me to preach, my first reaction was, oh, I'm just not good enough. Um, uh, I, I have not just found your pastors to be brilliant, but each one of you, I see the comments that you put in your section, uh, in your services, and it blows me away. Sometimes there's 200 comments, and uh, now I'm in New England where we, we're reserved. You know, we, you know, we wouldn't comment like that in person. But so I'm, I'm trying to tell you all, because our, our lead church here, where I am the interim minister, I was for 22 years at a beautiful interfaith community at the University of New Hampshire called the Waysmead Center. But I'm interim here, and I'm, they know about you all. Some of them check out your services and your other things. I tell them, you know, there's, con there's 250, 200 comments in there, and, and we might get 30. Um, but they're getting a little less reserved. But you all, but I realized that that denigration of myself was part of the journey that I have carried throughout my life was that somehow trying to understand that I was being invited to come as I am, not come as I wished I would be or dreamed or hoped I would be. So I said yes. Um, and I'm really blessed and grateful to be here. So I'll tell you another story. This is from a Southern writer, Flannery O'Connor, uh, um, who I've known about throughout my life, but really encountered this short story. It's a wonderful array of short stories in seminary um, from one of my professors. So this story is from a short story called Revelation, and it's about Mrs. Turpin. Now, I grew up with Mrs. Turpins, uh, literally and figuratively, and so Mrs. Turpin was a pillar of the community. She was upright person and she did her duty. She went to church. She was a God-fearing person. 
Um, and so she, was, she had to take her husband, Claude, to the, to the doctor. So they were in the waiting room, and she got there, and they got in the waiting room, and the waiting room was packed. It was full. She was a little bit indignant that she and Claude didn't get put in the special waiting room for folks who were pillars of the community, because they're in the waiting room with people who were loud. They, some of them smelled. They were dirty. They were obnoxious. They were, having, they were laughing. And she just felt that just is not proper, because Mrs. Turpin lived by the Southern Code of Culture. Now, I know what that is because I grew up with it, is that you didn't express things, certain things, but you kept them inside. Now, you thought them. So in that waiting room, she was going around thinking and judging and assessing every person in that waiting room um, and thanking God she wasn't like them. Um, and so she started to just say some things, you know, casual asides. And this young woman, Mary Grace, started to hear her and then started to argue with her and got louder and louder. Um, and Mrs. Turpin said, well, that's, that's not how a young, young woman should be acting. And then Mary Grace got so incensed, she lunged across the room and started to choke Mrs. Turpin uh, and choked her enough that she had bruises. Now, they finally broke Mrs. Mary Grace away, but Mrs. Turpin was indignant. That's not the kind of thing. It's not how you act, and that shouldn't happen to people like her. So she got clawed. They went home. And Ms. Turpin, quite honest, was kind of angry with God. And so went out and went into the pig pen. She had some work to do. And, you know, she said to herself, you know, well, we're always treating our help, who are all black. We're, all, we're treating them good. They're good. They know we're good. Now, sometimes they roll their eyes at me, but, you know, they, you know, they know that we, we, we tolerate them and treat them as we could. And so she's having this conversation with God, you know, holding God to account for what happened to her. She shouldn't have that happen to her. And then God took that pig pen and made it a thin place uh, where the veil of heaven and earth are combined and integrated. And so she had a revelation and a vision in that pig pen. And in that pig pen, she was given a glimpse of heaven. And there was a line to get into heaven. And when you raise Roman Catholic, you understand there's supposed to be a line. And Peter's there with gatekeeping and, and checking to make sure you're worthy. So she was in line, and she looked around. Right around her were people like her. The other pillars of the community were right with her. But what she noticed was they were at the back of the line. And in front of her, getting into heaven, were those riffraff, were the people in that waiting room, the unkempt, the unclean, the dirty, the loud, um, all the people that she judged every single day. And they were getting in ahead of them. And those words that Jesus said from the beginning of his ministry up into this day started to come up for her, like the last shall be first that we are called to love one another. I shall not judge. I think about Ms. Turpin from time to time, and uh, I think about this passage from the first letter to John, the first letter from John to a community that is newly formed. You know, there's scholars believe that John didn't necessarily write the gospel in these letters or even the book of Revelation, but they're from a school, a Johannine community. Uh, and this community in the letters of John's were a community at conflict. One of the conflicts was deeply theological that 
They, many of them believed that Jesus wasn't fully human because how could Jesus be human? How could God be in human form? Because we're imperfect, we're dirty, we're unclean people. But others deeply believed that God was fully human. Jesus was fully human. Jesus had to be fully human to understand what it was to get angry, to get mad, to be imperfect. Now, I suspect there were other, there were other kind of conflicts too, like we all have in our communities about who didn't use the coffee maker right and how you make pancakes. But John was writing to that community because John had evolved in his own evolution as a disciple of Christ. That in the Gospels, John and his brother James are often described as somewhat judgmental and aggressive people. Early in Mark, John and James are described by Jesus as sons of thunder. Not because they were soft and gentle people, because they were aggressive and assertive and came upon things like thunder. In Luke, John is the one who wants to stop this other person from casting out de uh, demons in Jesus' name because he wasn't one of them. He wasn't a part of their band. And Jesus is like, no, he's doing good work. And then right after that, John and James want to bring fire upon that village to exterminate and consume the village because of some things they had done towards them. And Jesus again said, no. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, John and James convinced their mother to go to Jesus and ask for John and James to have special places on the left and right of Jesus when they ascend to the kingdom. The sons of thunder. John named himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not exactly an expression of humility. So then this community, this John, writes in the letters of John a different take, a softer, gentler take. There's a legend that in one of the communities, the last community that John ministered to in Ephesus, John is no longer really mobile, so they had to carry him on a pallet into worship. So he was going there, and all he could say was, love one another. Love one another. That in this long arc, arc of journeying with Christ and doing the ministry of Christ, the learning, the teaching that came up for John was to love one another. The son of thunder was now the disciple of love. That beautiful letter that Wesley read so beautifully says, right off, beloved, let us love one another because love is of God. Everyone who loves is begotten of God and has knowledge of God. Love then consists in this, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent the only begotten to be offering for our sins. Beloved, if God has loved us so, we must have the same love for one another. Oh, where is it? I got my mask. I got my mask from you all here somewhere on my table. Here it is. I got this in July from you all. Love thy neighbor. It says right there in John, love one another. 
And I tell people in our church, when we say neighbor, we just don't mean the one you like next door or down the street. We mean those ones that push your buttons and the ones that are across the globe starving in this pandemic, but starving too long because of the policies of our nations and others. No one has ever seen God, yet if we love one another, God dwells in us and God's love is brought to perfection in us. Not that we are perfect, but that when we love like God, we amplify God's love in this earth that people do in fact finally see God because they see God's love in each one of us. Years ago, a student said, Larry, where do you see God? We're in a coffee shop in downtown Durham and says, where do you see God? And something instinctively rose up to me to say, I see God in you, Sasa. She goes, huh, her church hadn't taught her that. And it wasn't that I had any great revelation. God just told me to say that. And I realized that's where I'm finding God in that nature, but in each of you. And it's been a journey for me to recognize that I'm finding God not in the people I think are worthy. I too often, sometimes after our worship is over and I watch your all's worship, you know, YouTube or Facebook is flooded with other worship services and I listen to some of them and I can't tell you how many people are saying the word love and expressing hate in the, literally the same sentence where they are cultivating armies of God in spiritual warfare, using God's name to justify it. And we wonder why we see acts of hate committed against Asian Americans and people of color and LGBTQ community every single day. We have seen a decline in compassion and empathy over the last 50 to 100 years in our country, but over the last decade, Americans' loss of empathy is jarring. We are othering each other more and more. We took a message, some of us, that Jesus came and turned the world upside down. And too often throughout history, our church has tried to just put it right side up again because they can't take a message that radicalizes, revolutionizes how we love. So we got to set it back and we turn God's love into condemnation and judgment and mercy and denial and doubt and fear. And consequently, that's what people see from us. For someone who works with the younger generation that more and more is said, that's not where I'm going to find God. We're losing far too many because God's love is not expressed in that perfect love. And one of the reasons is because we've gotten what it means to say, come as you are. I've forgotten. Too often in my expression of love towards the world, I've had a hard time accepting all the things that I'm not. And I spend hours in a day thinking of all the things that I'm not and will never be versus all the things that I am and can be. Years ago, before I went into ministry, when my brother was sick, I would go down from Vermont as much as I could. My brother was an eclectic spiritual sort, and he was looking for healing services wherever he could find them. So I would go throughout the city trying to find healing. There's tons of churches in Roanoke, Virginia, and I found one in an abandoned church 
as an excommunicated Roman Catholic priest, he was doing healing services once a week. My sister and I went and we went there. The service was okay. But what I saw in the sanctuary, this battered, broken sanctuary, was people who'd come down from the mountains of Virginia, the poor, long ago their churches had closed, had been abandoned. I saw street people, those who were unhoused, sex workers, drug addicts, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, all the people who had been pushed or locked out of our churches, finding that place where they could come for healing. And it was one of the most humbling moments in my life. I wasn't in ministry yet, but I saw to myself, one, how I had been like the church. And despite my progressive liberal ideology, how often I had locked and constructed walls to those very people. And how often how this tradition that I followed had kept them outside the gates, outside the walls. And it kind of broke me open. And the journey from that point has been a humbling journey of talking less, listening more, opening my heart, acknowledging all the times when I'm wrong, and recognizing that God invites me to come as I am, just as God invites every one of you to come as you are to come as you are in this moment, not to go fix your hair, not to get a better coat on, not to finish the dishes or the project or putting the seeds in the garden. God says, come as you are right now, in this moment, not in six months when you think you're more worthy. Because you are worthy from the minute you came here. One of the hardest things for me to take in every day is hearing God's voice saying, Larry, I'm talking about you too. It's just not enough to go about saying that to other people. I'm talking about you too, so you come as you are. Yeah, you may have stumbled, you may have fallen, you may have screwed up, but you come as you are. The word perfect just doesn't appear in our scriptures in the way in terms of referring to us. If God wanted to create perfect beings, they would have done that. So you come as you are. In this moment, in that, the more of us come as we are, that's how we're going to make God's perfect love manifest in the beloved community. And justice and equity and peace and hope are going to come. And though it may seem impossible that the whole world will do that, we start with one person doing that. One more person in your life coming to understand and feel that love is one more than did the day before. And when we multiply that around this world, when we love freely in that agape way, and when we hold that divine love in all the manifestations of love, then more and more people are becoming loving, and then love does, does, does triumph in the way that love does. So come as you are, beloveds. I'm so grateful to be here because this past year, though I have never physically been with you, I do have a son and their partner in Austin, and I will be down to visit you as soon as we feel safe to travel again. But not even physically being present, what I've found in you every single time I have connected and clued in is an openness and an embrace and a support and an affirmation and a care, not just for each other. I have felt it. And I've said to myself more than one time, 
and said to my partner too, that's the community I've been looking for my whole life. And I feel so blessed to have found you across these miles and across these digital airwaves. And I hear Jesus and God telling me, Larry, you just come as you are. And there are communities that are learning to come as they are too. So we're gonna play a little song that I love from this group, The Many, that I've been using a lot during the pandemic from the Plural Guild Project. And I'm realizing this three minute song is, it could set everything I just said in much longer time and more succinctly and more beautifully. But um, we played it this morning in our worship and we're gonna play it for you all. <laughs> 